In life, there are right and wrong ways to respond to circumstances that are presented to us. Sometimes in our lives, the way we respond to certain circumstances are not clear. So we need wisdom, we need discernment, instruction perhaps, in how we ought to properly respond. Otherwise, oftentimes we respond entirely wrong. Here are a few examples. Like when I think of a really funny joke in my mind, and I share it, and no one laughs. Wrong response. Or at a funeral I recently attended, someone in the audience thought the speaker was sharing a joke and laughs out loud, <laughs> only to find out that the speaker was actually setting up for something really, really serious, the reason why his mother passed. That was really awkward. Or Katie this week, one morning, as she is getting ready for school, uh, she decides she wants to pack instant ramen for lunch because one of her friends did that and it looked really good. So listening to this, not saying a word, I tell her, well, go boil some water. But she gets upset, starts pounding her feet as she's walking down the steps. I hear her clanking the pot, spilling the coffee beans, and I'm thinking, why is she mad? I come to find out Katie thought I was ignoring her request and asking her to make me some coffee, which I often do in the morning. <laughs> I was telling her to boil the water for the ramen so we could pack it in a thermal for the ramen. Or perhaps, have you ever seen that infamous video several years ago of Pastor John Piper being laughed at? by a crowd of about 8,000 people as he's giving a sermon. Pastor Piper is at a national gathering of the American Association of Christian Counselors, and he begins his message by pouring out his heart, uh, by sharing his personal sins and struggles. But the audience, for several minutes, I think this intro lasts like five to ten minutes, and uh, every time he's confessing his sins, uh, they respond in laughter. And Piper, John Piper, gets so uncomfortable to the point where he outright says to them, you're a very strange audience because I totally did not expect you guys to laugh. And I'm continually perplexed. As he's saying this, people are just laughing. Ha, ha, ha. And, and he says, I am continually perplexed. Guess I better just get used to it because this is a serious talk. And the audience, once again, just busts out in laughing because they think he is telling a joke. It's the strangest video. You should look it up. Uh, just look up John Piper getting laughed at and you'll see it on YouTube. Come to find out, the audience had thought that according to their program, John Piper was actually a comedian who came to do a comedy act. They had no idea that he was giving a serious sermon. So, at any rate, wrong response to a situation that is presented. So, have you ever responded to something only to find out the way in which you responded was completely, entirely wrong? We're continuing our study through 1 Peter in our series, Hope in a Hostile World, and the author of the epistle, Apostle Peter, exhorts Christians whom he refers to as elect exiles, chosen of God, citizens of heaven, pilgrims of this hostile world who are journeying toward heaven, scattered all over first century North Asia Minor, and he exhorts them to persevere in the face of suffering and persecution. And the way he does this, he reminds them of who God is and who they are, in light of him. Well, in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, the author, Apostle Peter, exhorts Christians on how we ought to be faithful in suffering, warning exiles how not to respond in suffering, how we ought to rightly respond when afflictions come our way. But make no mistake about it, whereas the examples I gave to you earlier were examples of one party responding wrongly due to poor communication. Peter does not mince words. 
He says it very clearly. When suffering comes, do not respond that way, but respond this way. Don't respond that way. Respond this way. So from our passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, I want to share with you three ways Christians should respond rightly or faithfully in suffering. Three ways Christians should respond rightly or faithfully in suffering. Here's the outline so you know where we're going. Christians are, number one, not surprised from verses 12 through 13. Not surprised, 12 through 13. Point number two, not ashamed. Not ashamed from verses 14 through 16. And point number three, Christians entrust our souls to God. Christians entrust our souls to God from verses 17 through 19. Brothers and sisters, I pray if there is anyone here this afternoon who are struggling through a fiery trial, that this message will be an encouraging and empowering reminder and a fresh perspective for you to rejoice because God is with you. If you are here and you are not a Christian, thank you so much for joining us today. If by chance what you are experiencing in this life is suffering that is way beyond your strength, way beyond what you can bear, uh, that you would hear the voice of the one who bore all your sins so that you don't have to carry all those burdens by yourself. The one who carried all your burdens, his name is Jesus Christ, and he invites you today to turn to him, to confess your need of him, to surrender to him, and to trust him today, today, as your Lord and Savior. That is our prayer for you. So without further ado, let's turn to our text, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. It will be found on page 1016 of the Blue Bibles around you. I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach. If you are new to the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. By the way, if you do not have a Bible uh, to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles as a gift from us to you to help you grow in studying God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How should Christians respond rightly in suffering? Point number one, in the face of suffering, faithful Christians are not surprised from verses 12 through 13. Look with me to verse 12 again. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The first observation you may see in verse 12 is the word beloved. It's the same word Peter used in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, 
when he was starting a new section addressing submission to authorities. Peter ended that section in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, with the words, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter was saying was we can submit to earthly authorities. We can live as ones who are set apart in this world to be good stewards of Christ's gospel because God is ultimately in sovereign control. And you'll see it again how Peter begins this new section in our passage today with the same word, beloved, and ends this section in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11 with the same phrase, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, with God's glory. And I think what Peter is doing by this repetition and the similarity of form, Peter is drawing our attention and emphasizing for us the instructions which may be difficult which may be unnatural instructions, which are not normal unless one is genuinely born again to a living hope. The fact is, the lifestyle in which Peter is calling elect exiles to live is entirely impossible. It's not possible. It's only possible because of God's power working in us. That's chapter 1, verse 5. And so Peter is exhorting Christians with love, with God's love, as an affectionate apostle, as a caring pastor, as a spiritual father, as someone who knows our struggles, as someone who empathizes with the hardship, he addresses the believers as beloved. Beloved. And whatever he says that comes in the middle, though difficult and impossible it may seem, it is possible because it is all for the glory of God. God will do it in you. Amen? If you need some more convincing, just go and read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 again, and listen to the sermon from February 13th, We Are Elect Exiles, to refresh your mind. But Peter says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised when fiery trials, when it comes upon you, don't be surprised means don't be caught off guard. Don't be startled. Don't be alarmed. Peter says it more pointedly at the end of that verse. Don't think of it as though something strange, something weird is happening when fiery trials come upon you. In other words, as a Christian living in a sin-ridden, broken, fallen world, expect fiery trials. Expect suffering and hardship and persecution and hate and criticism, and slandering, and reviling. It is not strange. It is normal. It will happen. Suffering will come. So brothers and sisters, we as Christians of all people need to understand that in this world, you will have tribulation. Can I get an amen? This world is not meant to be heaven. We're not meant to have our best life here and now. We're not meant to live lives that are free of troubles. We're not meant to not suffer in this world. So dear beloved, do not be surprised that life is hard right now. Don't be shocked that troubles fill your days. Do not be alarmed that you will feel like your life right now is in the dumps as if something strange were happening to you. Now before we get any further, I want to clarify what fiery trials mean 
because the trial you may be experiencing may not be the type of trial Peter is referring to. Back in 1 Peter 1.6, Peter had already repeated this similar instruction. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, what are various trials and what are fiery trials? Are they the same thing? Well, many theologians and Bible scholars have different views on what these mean. Is it similar or is it different? Well, by various trials, it can mean any range of Christian suffering. Perhaps normal means of suffering in various seasons of life when we lack provision, power, position, protection, and a sense of permanence. Perhaps when we are under persecution for our faith, whether it's verbal, emotional, or physical on, on the account of our faith and trust in the Lord. Perhaps the pain that we experience in this life as we are plagued by physical ailments, emotional or mental illnesses, depression, anxiety, loneliness, and ultimately death. Perhaps spiritual pressures, spiritual warfare that we experience when the enemy, Satan, presses upon us lies and deceptions and doubt about who God is and who he made us to be. Maybe Satan is whispering in your ear, you are this way because God doesn't love you. You are this way because you are not really Christian. You are going through this because you are not good enough. You will never be good enough, and on and on and on. Well, let me just pause right there and tell you, if anyone here is hearing those lies, it is not from God. It is not from God. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, there is a second part to that verse, which says, but by no means will he leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But that is the invitation, brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, for sinners to come to the Father in repentance, to ask him, to plead with him to pardon your sins to wash your sins in the blood by the cleansing power of Jesus the Lamb. Amen? Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is an invitation for anyone who has come to the end of themselves, realizing that this life is not about what we ourselves can accomplish. This life is not about what we ourselves can accomplish but living in the reality of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So, beloved brothers and sisters, if you are experiencing various trials, take courage. Jesus says in John 16, 33, you should commit this verse to memory. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. And this verse confirms that trials you are experiencing has a purpose. This verse confirms that trials you are experiencing in this life right now has a purpose. It says it right there in verse 12, doesn't it? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, to test you. The purpose of the trials you are experiencing today is to test you. Now you may think, why in the world is God testing me? Why in the world is God testing me over and over again? 
Peter has already said in verse 1 7, 1 Peter 1 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose is the testing to prove the genuineness of your faith. The testing is to prove the genuineness of your faith. And this is where biblical theology, understanding the Bible in its entirety, helps a lot for us to understand the fuller meaning of the passage. Because this concept of having our faith tested is not a new concept that Peter is bringing here. And this is where we get a clearer understanding of what fiery trial means. So if you write these verses down, it will help you to reflect on it later. In Psalm 66, verse 10, Psalm 66, verse 10, it says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Write this verse down, Proverbs 27, verse 21. Proverbs 27, 21. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. I love that verse. The way a person praises God in suffering is an indication of their genuineness. A way a person praises God in suffering reveals the genuineness of their faith. Write this verse down, Zechariah 13.9, Zechariah 13.9, and I will put this into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Brothers and sisters, are you getting the idea? Christianity is not about living your best life now. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity now. It's not about living a perfectly secure, stress-free, worry-free life here on earth. Christianity is about you knowing that in this life there is no one else. There is no one else but God. Who is my God? Who is for me? Who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise? My God. He is the only one for me. He is the only one worthy of all honor and glory and praise. That's why Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 says this. Can you actually turn to Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, which is found on page 802 in the Blue Bibles, towards the end, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 says this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into the temple. Now, this is fulfilled by Jesus in John chapter 7. Read it later. Jesus has come. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what is this saying? He is coming again. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old, as in former years. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand the rich theology of this prophecy in Malachi, Jesus has come and he is coming again. But again, the question, who can endure the day of his returning? 
those who have been refined by the refiner's fire. Those who have been purged in the great purging will only be able to withstand. This is why Isaiah chapter 1 verses 24 through 26 says, Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in the days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. This is why Job declares in Job chapter 23, verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Brothers and sisters, the only reason that any of us, that you and I will be able to stand in the congregation of saints on that glorious day of his reappearing is because we will be made genuine. We will be made genuine by the power, by the mercy, by the grace of our good and perfect God. Amen? Do you see why, having gone through the refiner's fire, the purging of the refiner's fire, we will praise God for all eternity? Because then, only then, we will fully grasp on that day how much the cost of Christ sacrificed, how much the preciousness of His cleansing flow, how unworthy, depraved, and wretched sinners we are in the presence of the most holy, righteous, and glorious King. That's why Peter says again, as he had already said in chapter 1, verse 6, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, look with me there, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now read this verse very, very carefully. Look with me there into that, that verse. The reason why you rejoice now in your suffering is because by you sharing in Christ's sufferings, you know. You, you are certainly guaranteed that you will rejoice and be glad on the day that His glory is revealed. In other words, you can rejoice today in fiery trials, brothers and sisters, because you know with certain hope and certain assurance you will be rejoicing for endless days in Christ with His church. Amen? As a hardworking farmer knows that his hard work will pay off at harvest. As a military wife awaits with joy and thrill that her husband deployed on assignment is returning in a few weeks. As a child excitedly awaits for a field trip coming next morning, he can hardly sleep. We who are truly born again await with rejoicing that Christ is indeed soon returning. So dear brothers and sisters, what is your attitude and posture in the fiery trial the Lord brings upon you today. Do you realize that it's not because God is punishing you? It's not because God has forgotten about you? It's not because God hates you? No, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Your suffering proves, it shows that God loves you, that He's testing you, that He is refining you. He has a purpose for your suffering. So what does rejoicing look like in the midst of suffering? It doesn't mean you pretend like things are not hard. It doesn't mean hiding your true emotions with fake smiles on your faces. It doesn't mean positive thinking. It doesn't mean ignoring reality. It means realizing with hope 
and confidence and faith that your sufferings are not merely your own, that your sufferings are not merely your own. Christ shares your sufferings. Christ owns your sufferings. Christ blesses your sufferings, which is the next verse. But as Dr. Tom Schreiner says in his commentary, sufferings are not a sign of God's absence. Sufferings are not a sign of God's absence, but his purifying presence. Christ is with you, brothers and sisters, in your suffering. He has not abandoned you. Suffering now is the means of attaining greater joy in glory. Hence, we rejoice now for a greater suffering that is coming with certain joy. Amen? But there is more to be said about God's purpose for us in suffering, so let's move to point number two. How should Christians faithfully respond to suffering? Number two, be unashamed. Be unashamed in suffering from verses 14 through 16. Look with me to verse 14 again. It says this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not only is suffering an evidence of God's purifying presence in your life, it's an evidence actually of God's blessing. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Somebody say blessed. Got to keep you guys awake. The phrase insulted in the name of Christ further clarifies for us what Peter means by fiery trials. Believers are tested because of their faith, because of what they believe about God, because of their resolve to speak truth about God, because of their commitment to God's word, to God's people, and God's calling on their lives, because of their covenant with fellow believers and prioritizing of our faith before all else. We are insulted in the name of Christ as bigots and hypocrites, outdated, judgmental, hateful, and backward. But let these verses be very clear that the purpose of your suffering and being insulted is not because of your own sinful doing. It is possible for Christians to suffer because of their own sins, to experience the consequences of your own sinful behaviors. Peter lists them in verse 15, doesn't it? It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If you are suffering because you are a murderer, you physically killed somebody and you are in prison, justice is served. That suffering is a consequence of your own doing. If you are suffering because you are a thief, you stole things and you are facing its consequences. Nobody trusts you. People are suspicious of you. That's on you. If you lie about your taxes and you get audited and you owe a huge debt to the IRS and you are suffering financially, that's on you. If you're an evildoer, a liar, unfaithful, perverse, wicked, a real bigot, a real hypocrite, a real hateful, unloving ingrate, whatever you face in this life, that is on you. But the last description is the most helpful because although most Christians might not fall into the extreme categories of murderer, thief, or even an evildoer, many may fall into the category of the meddler. A meddler is a busybody, a gossip, someone who loves meddling in other people's businesses, who is always current on the latest community rumor mill, who is always on the hunt for some juicy controversy, someone who knows always what's trending on Twitter, what are the latest headlines. That is a meddler. Suffering and shame will eventually come to those who stand in the counsel of the wicked, who, who stand in the way of sinners, who sits in the seat of scoffers. Yet verse 16 
Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. Let him not be ashamed of whatever insults they throw at you when you stand for the name of Christ. Let him not be ashamed of whatever afflictions that come upon you when you trust in the name of Christ. Let him be unashamed for whatever persecution that presses against you when you boldly proclaim the name of Christ. Let him glorify God in that name. Let him boast Jesus in that name. Jesus, the name of all names. Jesus, the sweetest of all names. Jesus, the Savior. Jesus, the Redeemer. Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus, the Son of the living God. Jesus, the only begotten Son. Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. Jesus, the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus, the Head of the Church. Jesus, the Almighty. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus, the Priest, Prophet, King. Jesus, the Emmanuel. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus, the rock. Jesus, the true vine. Jesus, the word. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, the lion of Judah. Jesus, the bright and morning star. Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Jesus, the great I am. Jesus, the bridegroom. Jesus, our Lord and our master. Jesus, the Christ. Peter says, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Glorify God in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Did you catch it? What a privilege. What great honor. What great mercy and grace that we have been given to suffer as a Christian What a name we have been given to be called little Christs, not as a murderer, not as a thief, not as a evildoer, not as a meddler, but as a Christian. You, brothers and sisters, if you profess that Christ is your Lord and King, you are a Christian, and you did not work your way toward that title. That name was given to you, bought for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter says, be unashamed in that suffering in the name of Christ because it proves who you are, a Christian, a child of God. Glorify God in that name. Amen? Oh, my goodness. Think and pray upon that. Amen? Let that truth reverberate in your life. You are a child of God. Peter says, you are blessed in that name. And Peter explains what it means to be blessed, doesn't he? In verse 14, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests on you. What does that mean? The God of glory and the Holy Spirit rests on you in the name of Jesus. The triune God rests upon you. He knows you. He has you. He is for you. He will never leave or forsake you. John Piper says, this means in the hour of our greatest trial, there is a great consolation. In great suffering on earth, there is great support from heaven. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, 
I hope you realize, I hope in your hearts you understand what profound, amazing reality this is, that the Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of glory rests on you. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. It's the reason why churches have gathered all over the city and all over the world today and all throughout the generations because of the news that Jesus died and rose and ascended and is coming again. What great consolation for depraved sinners. What great support from heaven that God, the creator of the universe, holy and righteous and glorious and eternal, created man in his own image for us to know his great love. Yet man, having been tempted by Satan, rebelled against God, choosing to be gods unto ourselves, deliberately disobeying and distrusting God's word. As a result, we were separated from God, incapable of saving ourselves, incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and cyclical toil of self-fulfillment and dissatisfying curse and power of sin. We were set on a path to a consequential and eventual death to receive the judgment for our sins, the wrath of God in eternal hell. But God had a plan before the foundation of the world to save and set apart a people for himself to know the name by whom we would be saved. The name of Jesus, the name of all names. Jesus, who is the son of the living God. Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, who lived the perfect sinless life that we could not live and died the substitute death on the cross that we should have died. And he took upon himself the wrath of God reserved for us paid or propitiated for our sins, sparing us of the eternal judgment, we would have suffered in eternal hell. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his perfect sacrifice, which meant that Jesus only, Jesus alone conquered sin, Satan, and death forever. So now anyone, everyone who would call on the name of Jesus can be forgiven of their sins, sins of the past, Listen, sins of the present. Listen, sins of the future. And be a recipient of the new life offered to us through his resurrection. And by his ascension, the victorious life, the joy in the midst of suffering life, the hopeful life, the blessed life granted to us even in this life by the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on us. An eternal life prepared for us when he returns. So friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, we're so very glad that you are here. You could have been anywhere else, but the Lord was gracious to you today. You are here to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus the Christ died, rose, and ascended, and is returning for you, that he alone came to save you as no other name in heaven, nobody else has ever done. Let me ask you, if you're not a Christian, do you know of anyone else Have you heard of any other God who has come for you to extend you mercy, to extend you grace and salvation? Have you ever heard of any other God, any other God of any other religion who died for your sins? No one. So friend, if you're not a Christian, if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, repent of your sins today, which means turn from your sins. Confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe Jesus died and rose again for you. And trust him with your life today, this moment. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, I'll be standing at the back door at the close of service. Pastor Jeremy will be at the outside door. Philip, our service leader, will be standing on this door. Please come and talk to any of us.
so that we can pray with you and guide you in how you can follow Jesus. We would love nothing more to speak with you today. Don't let this day pass without you learning how you can follow Jesus. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The fact that you are suffering now is evidence that God is working in you to produce within you endurance and character and hope, hope which will not put you to shame, hope which is secured by the Holy Spirit poured out in your hearts. In a similar way, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, you know this verse well. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, Matthew 24, verse 13 says it in a similar way, but a different way. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So let me ask you this question. How are you doing in your enduring? How are you doing with your rejoicing in suffering? How are you doing glorifying God in the name of Jesus? How are you doing persevering in prayer and in the Word? How are you doing pressing into fellow believers? How are you doing in your character? Are you one who is known to be always up and down? Are you one who is always known to be unstable? Or are you steadfast? Are you steadfast in the Lord? Let me clarify. Are you steadfast in the Lord? The Christian is not one who, is, who always has everything right or everything together. Yet he or she is the one who is steadfast in the Lord. That's the evidence of your maturity in Christ. You are clinging to Christ. Whatever trial, whatever circumstances, whatever suffering, you are one who is clinging on to Christ. Amen? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Let Peter encourage you this afternoon. It's okay if you are still not all there yet. We are all pilgrims in this journey. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Be humble before God and before men. Pray for joy. Pray for endurance. Pray for character. Pray for growing hope. Pray for steadfastness. Pray for you that you will not be ashamed. Pray that you will glorify God in the name of Jesus. Amen? There's one more way how Christians should faithfully respond to suffering. Point number three, Christians ought to entrust our souls to God. Verses 17 through 19. Look at verse 17. It says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins it with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 17 gives us even more clarity on what fiery trial means, what Peter means in reference to being refined by fire of God. It is the judgment of God. Peter answers for us, what's going on in the world? What's going on in ourselves? What's going on in evangelicalism, the church of God? Why are all these people who identify themselves as Christians, why are they all leaving the faith? What is with this deconstruction project? This is an age-old question that many Christians have asked in their spiritual warfare and suffering. This is the deep, perplexing quandary of the psalmist in Psalm 73. The question that the psalmist asks, why do the good suffer and the wicked prosper? This is one of the most startling theological questions of every generation. 
And so many people who could not come up with an answer are leaving the faith left and right. Why does God allow wicked, godless men and women all the riches and all the celebrity, all the prosperity on earth while the good are suffering, while the good are just barely making it? The simple answer, there is no one good. The simple answer, there is no one good. That's what Jesus says in Mark 10, 18. If you're asking yourself, I'm a good person, why aren't I thriving and and doing awesome? There is no one good. Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not even you, not even me. So, brother and sister, if you are hearing these words and understand the words of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19 correctly, verse 17 ought to be one of the most sweetest and humbling and gut-wrenching, eye-opening truths of God's grace and favor in all of Scripture. This is the reason why you came to church today, for God to speak this word to you. There is no one good. And that's the reason why we can rest in the gospel That although you and I rightly deserve, along with the rest of humanity, to be dead in our trespasses and sins, the just punishment of eternal torment in hell, though we rightly deserve that, we, who are recipients of God's grace, have been made alive, made alive, born again, to experience the judgment of God now, the purging of our wicked fleshly nature now the refining fire of our faith now, the fiery trial now, suffering now, so that we can experience and partake in glory later at Jesus' reappearing. This is not the blessing, the joy, the hope, the confidence, the inheritance of the wicked. Proverbs 29.1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. They will suddenly, certainly be broken beyond remedy. Psalm 73, 19 says how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. First Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter is referencing for us Old Testament passages where God warns of this exact thing. Write these verses down. Jeremiah 25, 29, for behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. In Amos 3.2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And in the New Testament, it's confirmed, Romans 2.9, Romans 2.9 There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. What Peter means in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, he means that the blood-bought, chosen people of God, the elect exiles of God, which is the new temple of God in Christ, are those who will undergo judgment or the purging of God in order that only those who are truly His, only those who are truly His, will remain standing at His reappearing. Who will stand? 
those who have gone through the refiner's fire. That's Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. When Jesus came and warned, they didn't listen, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Simply, brothers and sisters, our wrong response to God in suffering should not be, why me? Why are you doing this to me, God? Why not them? No. Our response should be, why do you spare me? How could you refine me? Why for me, suffering now, glory later? Brothers and sisters, do you understand now why we can rejoice in suffering now for a greater, truer rejoicing later? Look at verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It gives us a new meaning of Philippians 2.12, doesn't it? My beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It gives us a new meaning. It causes us to treasure and value our salvation, which is only by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Psalm 1.5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And so, brothers and sisters, let me remind you, the only reason why we will be able to stand in judgment or sit in the congregation of the righteous is because the righteous one came to purchase us by his blood and wash us by his cleansing flow so that we who are covered by his blood can be passed over and spared of death and eternal hell. Therefore, Peter says in verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The righteous way to respond to suffering on earth is to entrust our souls to God, to our faithful creator. He knows what he is doing. He holds us in his hand. He is in control, and we entrust ourselves to him while we are doing good. What does that mean? Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep reading his word. Keep praying. Keep denying yourself. Keep pressing on. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep doing good, even as suffering are pressing in. Why? Jesus is coming. The king is returning. Suffering now. Glory later. Reflecting on the reality of suffering as Christians, the poet Ella Wheeler penned these words, all those who journey soon or late must pass within the garden's gate, must kneel alone in darkness there and battle with some fierce despair. God pity those who cannot say, not mine, but thine, who only pray, let this cup pass and cannot see the purpose in Gethsemane. Psalm 73 starts with a question, why me and not them? But ends with this phrase, Psalm 73, verses 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Brothers and sisters, as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, let us remember the one who pled for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, the one who spelt his blood on Gogotha's hills for our salvation. When suffering comes, do not be surprised. He purposes to refine your faith. When suffering comes, do not be ashamed of Jesus' name. He's proving you are his. When suffering comes, do entrust your souls to Christ. Judgment is here for your purifying, and judgment is coming for the wicked. When trials come, rejoice. When trials come, rejoice, because glory is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves to you. In a day when there are so many stressors and anxieties, Father, we often think that we could escape the reality of this world by seeking pleasure, by ignoring what we know we should be doing, trusting our souls to you. Father, so many times we seek the path of escapism, just soaking in what this world offers. But Father, you are reminding us again. You are reminding us again to not be ashamed, to not be surprised, to entrust our souls on you. Father, thank you for the ways that you refine us and purify our faith. May these words, Father, pierce into the hearts of all who hear this afternoon. Father, refine us. May we not return home the same, the same, normal, average, lukewarm. Father, may our hearts burn white hot with the flame of Christ to do the work that you have called us to do, to love, serve, and to be faithful for your glory, for your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name.